Coming up today on the Lead to Succeed podcast. For me, success is the journey, like actually thoroughly enjoying the journey and learning and growing. And there's really no um, finish line. Like I like to call it a series of sprints rather than a marathon because, you know, once you're done with that first sprint, there's another one that has to get run. Um, but you have to be present. You have to be observant. You have to ask questions. You have to value the opinion of others, regardless of whether they're a brand new stock associate or they're the CEO. You know, you have to value them as a human being. And when you do that, most people, I believe, will live up to the potential. Do you want to learn the tricks that top leaders use to get the most out of themselves and their teams? Well, Naftali Hoff is here to help lead to succeed. Picks the brains of top leaders to learn about their challenges, insights, and best practices. Here's Naftali. Hello, Lead to Succeed Nation. It's Naftali Hoff, and welcome to Lead to Succeed, episode 131. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Brian Lebrach. Brian worked in retail for 35 years from the stockroom to the corner office. He was a VP of, of stores for PacSun and Urban Outfitters and most recently ran Old Navy stores in Canada. His new book helps people write or rewrite their career outcomes. Brian, I'm so glad to have you on the show today. Naftali, I'm glad to be here as well. Looking forward to the conversation. Awesome. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it as well. And uh, tell me just right off the bat, um, I don't know too many people who, who, you know, when you, when you, when you, when you visit a kindergarten class and you ask the kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they typically say policeman or something similar. Um, even as you get older, I hear a variety of different things people are interested in. I don't typically hear retail. So just curious to know, how did you get into it? What was your, your course direction there? And, um, and, and let, let's take it from there. Yeah. Um, well, it's in my DNA. So it was a choice of my own. My father was a VP with Chess Gang Corner Office, 80th floor of the Empire State Building. Um, mm -hmm. As I grew up, my grandfather owned his own business. And if you look up my last name in Google, you'll find that they're either rabbis or manufacturers dating back to the 1800s in Poland. So I don't know that I had a wow. choice. Um, I'm a retailer, you know, and it just, I, I like to tell the story as early as I was able to sit at the dining room table, I was hearing stories about retail. You know, I would take mm -hmm. the Metro train in with my father from Stanford, Connecticut to Manhattan on a regular basis and had the privilege and luxury of sitting next to CEOs that my father worked with and just knew kind of what the route was. I wanted to be a baseball player. Don't get me wrong. That was my dream. I thought you were going to say realized, you wanted to be a rabbi. No, 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 no. Baseball player, hands down. Until I was 15, I realized that it was probably not going to work out. So at that point, I knew retail was my career. And the good thing is I had a pretty good understanding of the outline of what it would take to ascend as well. Okay. That's very interesting. Okay. So I think we share some common roots there, although the retail side, not so much, um, but minimally you have the, you have the face beard for a baseball yes. player. That much. Yes. That much yes. I can Fair tell enough. You. Fair enough. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's go a little bit further then. So um, you talked about just now, you know, sort of sitting with your dad with CEOs and whatnot and, and, and kind of picking up, bits and pieces from them. I'm just curious, we could go really broad here. We can go more specific on the topic of leadership because this is a leadership podcast. So when you have the ability to sit with people to, to kind of glean from them, what it is that they do, how they do things, um, it's a real opportunity and, and not everybody gets that opportunity. So I'm, I'm curious to know, what did you pick up from others that helped you to do, how would you describe your own leadership style? Let's start there. Yeah. And, and how would you say that your leadership style was affected 
by the observations you made in your youth and in your early parts of your career, as opposed to, so to speak, um, figuring it out on your own and forging your own path? Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, I would say, you know, I like to refer to it as I flip the pyramid. You know, my style of leadership is I work for those that I'm accountable to, which are those that technically I employ. Um, and if I make them my primary customer, then they are the ones that I will lose sleep at night over, right? If I'm not doing my job versus the other way around. And it keeps me honest. Um, I like to think I'm confident yet humble. You know, I'm, I, I feel good that I know what it is that I know because I put the work in behind the scenes and I do observe a lot. You know, I've been lucky in this book that I'm writing or about to publish has a lot to do with me wanting to offer for others what was offered to me. You know, I've had the luxury of really running into some great leaders in my career and some not so great leaders that I've learned from as well. Um, yep. But those that I have learned from, you know, I learned from you know, a gentleman named Dave Temple, probably the first one to smack me in the back of the head and kind of set me straight um, and really make sure that I lived up to my potential. Um, but when you see somebody that's successful, whatever you define success as, you should observe, you should pay attention. And maybe it isn't exactly what you might do, but you should want to learn what it is that they do that gets followers, you know? Um, mm -hmm. Because if they're getting followers, they must be doing something right. Now, we all know not all leaders are leading in the right direction, but they're doing something that's getting somebody to follow them. And so I think observation is key. Mm -hmm. So you didn't say these words, but it sounded to me like a form of servant leadership where you really are, you know, making your the, those that report up to you your priority and the focus of your leadership. Was that something you came to on your own? Was you, did you see that modeled? Um, what was your what was your your path to that to that um, way of thinking? Yeah, it's interesting. It happened early on. I probably was maybe 18, 19 years old, and I saw myself have an impact on two people's progression. And I saw myself as a store manager, a general manager back then, being able to get two assistant managers to a store manager. And this was a long, long, long time ago. But to see you know, the way they were able to get where they were able to get to and the impact that I had. Now, they did it. They did the work. I created the capacity for them to succeed. But it made me feel really good. And so from that point forward, I knew that other people succeeding filled my cup. It wasn't just my success. And um, later on in life, Simon Sinek, you know, the whole why theory and all of that. It was hard for me to think about what my why was until I remembered that moment. Like my why selfishly is I like to have a hand in other people's growth, even my bosses. If my bosses can grow because of something I've done, I feel fulfilled. And if my bosses don't want to grow from things that I provide, I usually don't have the best relationship with them as well. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to drill down, I think on two areas that you you've been touching on. Number one, you, you talked about success, however you define it. So I'm curious to know how you define it. Yeah. Great question. Um, and then, and then number two, you talked about in different forms, creating capacity for other people's success. So for, for other leaders who are listening, what would be some of the best approaches you would say, Brian, to, to help maximize people's potential to, 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 to nurture uh, and bring forth those abilities yeah. that other people have within them? Yeah, well, I think the, one of the most important things is be observant and be present. You know, a ton of leaders are in the back rooms and their offices on their phones. And if you want to really be able to help people recognize, because success or winning, it, it's just everybody's different, right? You asked the question at the beginning. For me, success is the journey, like actually thoroughly enjoying the journey and learning and growing. And there's really no um, finish line. Like I like to call it a series of sprints rather than a marathon because, you know, once you're done with that first sprint, there's another one that has to get run. Um, 
but you have to be present. You have to be observant. You have to ask questions. You have to value the opinion of others, regardless of whether they're a brand new stock associate or they're the CEO. You know, you have to value them as a human being. And when you do that, most people, I believe, will live up to the potential. I read something actually just the other day. And I can't remember exactly what the quote was, but it talked about, uh, oh, yeah, it was um, Elon Musk said, if you give somebody 30 days to clean a house, it'll take them 30 days. If you give them three hours, they'll get it done in three hours. I also think as a leader, your expectation of people is similar. If you have low expectations of people, they'll meet you there. But if you have high expectations of people, they're more likely to meet you there if you pay attention to when they make mistakes and give them the feedback that they need in the moment. Because if you don't give them the feedback, then they don't know it's a mistake and they don't know how to course correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I actually, I think I was thinking about what you were saying in the context also of time management, because there's something called the the, the this I think it's Parkinson's second law um and it's not a scientific law I think there was just some guy by that name who had some some uh, some I guess uh um observations and and one of them I believe that law in effect says that that people will take the amount of time uh to do a task that that is allotted for that task and so that that does speak to not only your quote but I think to the the general concept of, of setting expectations for people. You know, I remember years ago, my background is in education. And so I'm a former class classroom teacher, college instructor, school leader, all of that. And then I moved into coaching more recently. And um, I remember distinctly one time being um, a college instructor, I guess you'd call a professor, but it was a very small school. So I'm not quite sure what the proper title was. It didn't really matter. One of my colleagues who was also acting as the dean of that particular program at the time commented to me, you know, I, I made my students work harder than, than, than my colleagues did. So in other words, they would have more frequent assessments. They'd have to write more in terms of papers and whatnot. And so he told me that my reputation at the time was, was tough, but fair. And it, it stuck with me because I think it was relevant to everything I did professionally that I always held myself to a high standard and I wanted to hold other people to a high standard too, because I wanted to accomplish. I didn't want to be a leader of a, of a, of a poorly functioning class organization, et cetera. I wanted it to be maximized and, and really to grow. Um, and I knew that in order to do that, I needed to lead by example, but I always wanted, I, I would, I would rather in a way push a little bit too hard and be told that I needed to, scale it back than to not push hard enough mm -hmm. and allow it to be where we kind of coast through the day. So I'm curious to get your take on that. I can't say my leadership style was always, always widely, widely loved and embraced. I know that for a fact. In fact, my, my first book, um, I often pull this one out because whenever I talk about leadership, it includes my, my, my mistakes as well as my successes. Um, so I know I learned a lot. I couldn't have written the book without it. I'm curious to get your take on that. You know, like what is the what is the right line when you you want to push, you want to achieve, you want to get things done yourself, others, and at the same time you run the risk of people saying, "Hey, he's too much of a of, of a slave driver and he's he's running us into the ground." How did you figure that part out? Yeah, it's it's I God, I just I just had this conversation not that long ago with my publisher when we were finishing up a couple of parts of the book. It, it's um you know the whole you stress concept, the idea of like there's a certain amount of stress that's like really healthy for people. Um, and they need it. And it's finding that perfect amount of stress for people. And some people can handle more than others, but you have to be present and observant to know. Because typically that, what I notice and, and what I've read and, and, and learned over the years is people act out of character when they're too stressed. 
And so if you're observant and you know people's tendencies and you're pushing them and you notice, for example, an introvert all of a sudden starts to blurt out a lot of conversation and starts to get really visibly frustrated or an extrovert starts to hide in the corner and not talk at all, just two examples, you're probably pushing them a little bit too far and you need to check in with them to see how they're doing. But I, I agree with you 100%. You have to you have to create tension, right? It's just like working out at the gym or cardiovascular exercise. If you don't create any kind of tension, you don't grow. Yeah. Um, but if you create too much tension, you can you know, obviously hurt yourself as well. Yeah, yeah, you gotta be careful there. So let me ask you this. Let's talk about your book. You've mentioned it a few times. Uh, what's the title? What's it about? Who is it for? How can it help? Yeah, you? yeah, no, it's called The Retail Leader's Roadmap. And it is meant to either help you write or rewrite your career outcomes. And I believe it will do more rewriting than writing because I believe more people will pick the book up when they find themselves to be quite a bit you know, stuck, if you will, which I think in retail, from my experiences, the vast majority of people will feel stuck at one point or will feel stuck right now for that matter. Uh, and a lot of that is because what I've seen and witnessed is the whole 80-20 rule. I believe that you know, 20% of the leaders out there actually invest in their teams and flip the pyramid and 80% don't. And it's not because they don't want to in every case. I think in some cases it's because they just don't have the time. Scopes have gotten so large for leaders today based on budgetary and finance reasons. Um, there's just not as much time. And in some cases it is intentional and they don't really care about their folks. So what about those eight out of 10 people that don't, aren't lucky enough to work for a leader that invests in them, that makes them the priority? That's what this book is meant to do. And it's a it's it's a diagnostic tool, if you will. So it, it's a book that can be read from cover to cover, but a book that can be picked up at a certain practice, right? So that you, you know, for example, if you notice that you're stuck, maybe it's one particular area, whether it's you're not leading by example today or you're not communicating or influencing effectively, you can pick up that particular chapter and get some nuggets on how to either get unstuck or to recognize maybe some skill sets, efficiencies that you've got to lean into. Okay, so I I, I, I want to clarify something because you, the way you described it initially, I understood it one way, and then the very end, I understood it a little bit different. Yeah. Who who is the main um, target audience? Is it the leader in retail, or is it somebody who's a direct report in retail? I think it I think it fits everybody in retail, but it would be primarily for the leader. I would say the leader will get more. Okay. The leader will get more out of it. However, if I'm an employee and I want to be a leader. Uh -huh. The very first practice is how to outwork. The second practice is how to outlearn. And if you're okay. an associate trying to work your way at the top, that's where you have to start. And if you're a leader, you have to be able to do that work as well. So it it and it and although retail is in the title, um, I wanted to make sure I stuck in my lane with what I know. Um, mm -hmm. I just got my real estate license. You know, my wife and I run a business. Everything that I've done, I've had to apply the same exact, you know, tools. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But uh, I wanted to stick to the lane and make sure that I spoke to the retailer first. Okay. That makes sense. So let's talk about stuckness for leaders then, because I understood initially when you were describing it as more of a, I work for somebody, not that he's an ogre, but he's not aware, sensitive, informed, have time, whatever the reasons are. And I kind of feel like I'm locked in place because I have somebody who isn't leading the way I'd like to be led. But now if we're talking about from the perspective of the leader, primarily, what does stuckness look like for them? Well, I think actually what you were thinking and what you just said, I think applies as well. I think leaders work for other leaders. So I do believe that it's as much for people who work for people because the the final practice in the second pillar, which is build your connections, is influence. And there's a lot of conversation in that chapter about how to influence your boss and their boss um, because you will be stuck if they 
those two individuals, your boss and their boss, do not align to you. If you don't align to them, they don't align to you. If they don't support you, you don't support them. You're stuck. And a lot of people don't want to accept that reality. Um, but it is the truth because they do pull the strings. And more mm -hmm. often than not, leaders who work for leaders, if they can't find the professional contribution in those folks, they have a hard time and they've remained stuck. You know, mm -hmm. and that's a chapter in the book that I think when people read it, they're not going to like portions of it because it's really going to put the onus back on you, the person who's working for those two individuals and how you need to influence them or decide to go somewhere else and influence two other people. Yeah. So I, I, let's do that for my listeners right now. Let's put the onus on them and uh, and and say, if you're going to be providing, and for, for me, by the way, too, uh, even though I'm not in that kind of structure anymore, but my point is, if you were going to advise somebody who is in a situation where they are um, looking up at somebody for whom they're struggling, the communication is not where it needs to be, et cetera. They need to, they need to be more influential. Maybe they need to lead up. What are some practical things that you could tell anyone who's listening that will enhance their relationship, make them more influential and ultimately chart a better course? Yeah. I mean, I'll give you an example of how I you know, was reminded of doing it. So my wife is a, is a, basically an executive coach. She runs her own fitness business as well. So I'm coached every single day at home. So I'm a very happy person. I'm a, I'm in a good mood on a regular basis. And there was a period of time where I was coming home, not happy. And my wife looked at me and she said, like, obviously you're not happy what's going on. And, and, you know, we talked it over and she basically looked at me and she said, look, you need to find the professional contribution in this person. They're not going to find it in you. Like you have to meet them 51% of the way you have to put forth greater effort to, to see what it is that they offer and provide for them what it is that they're asking for. And if you can't do that, you need to go look somewhere else. Because if not, eventually you're going to get a pink slip from this person because they're not going to mm -hmm. meet you where you are. So my advice to folks is study hard, pay attention, find the professional contribution, do your best to do that. And if you can't, after you've exhausted yourself and you just can't sleep well at night because what this boss does, you can't align to, make the decision to leave. Don't hang out because you'll be miserable at work. You'll be miserable at home. So that's the biggest piece of advice that I would give. Okay. So another thing that you talk about, I believe, is developing people first and systems second. Uh, talk more about what that looks like and why that's so important. Yeah. So it, it, I talk about the five P's of performance. And over the years, I found myself doing all the same work, but I never really kind of put a title to it. And so the five P's of performance are people and product prioritized with processes to support drives productivity and people first product. Now, now I think in the old days, I would say, I would have said systems and processes. Now I say product is secondary, right? Cause it, it, when you're working in retail, you're selling some product of some kind and you need to, to, to prioritize what product to pay attention to. So what I've learned over the years is it's, it's easy and kitschy to say people first, right. And, and, and even product second or system second, but what does it mean? You have to prioritize people. And a lot of people don't like to have those conversations. So I use the baseball example. I'm a huge baseball fan. Somebody hits first, somebody hits ninth. And the person who's hitting first is probably making more money and getting a bit more of an investment than the person hitting ninth, right? But the ninth unless person the, still Unless matters. the ninth guy is a pitcher. Could, it could be, a, yeah, good, <laughs> right? Back in the day before the, the, the DH. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But I think the, the the idea of leaders understanding where to how where and how to invest their time and how to make sure nobody gets left behind. And so how do you invest your time in the most important individuals that drive the majority of your contribution to the business? 
and then still make sure your eight, nine, seven hitters are getting what they deserve. And there's a way to do that through other people. Um, so there's a skill in how to do people first versus just having this feeling that people should be the priority. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So let, let me, let's, let's make this a little bit more, let's apply it even further. I guess I would say, okay. if, especially if you're dealing with layers. So let's say I'm, I'm the CEO or I'm the top exec and I've got some, some, some management levels underneath me. There's some people down below that I'd like to connect with. I'd like to make sure that they understand that I, I value them, et cetera. They're not my direct report and I don't have a day-to-day -day type of, uh, of interaction with them. So this description that you were focusing on just now, was it mainly the direct report to his or her manager? Was it multiple levels above? Because you said involving other people, I understood that maybe I'm going to task somebody else to be the primary nurturer, if you will, of that individual, but I'll still I'll still get involved or at least I'll be behind the scenes making it happen. Talk us yeah, through that a little yeah. bit so that it becomes, yeah. Yeah, let me give you, I give you two examples. So if I have, I was using, 10 direct reports, let's say. A lot of a lot of folks in retail at different levels have maybe, let's say, eight to 10 direct reports. We'll use 10. Um, I'm going to spend the majority of my time with my top two. And those okay. top two might be my best performers, or they might be where the business needs me to be because the contribution is the most. I'm going to make sure I'm developing those top two to influence the middle population through their actions. They don't need to do oh, anything so with them. Not, it's, it's the actual employees. Got it. Okay. And, and then the bottom performer, they might help me mentor and develop. But even further than that, you 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 asked the question about like, you know, CEOs and then they want to get maybe a layer or two beneath their direct report. Mm -hmm. I also think most, I've also witnessed in my career, most people evaluate their direct reports based on their direct reports performance and what they say and do. I, I take it further. You need to skip level. You need to, you need to go past your direct reports, truly evaluate your direct report. Because mm -hmm. I see it as you pay your direct report to take care of your customer, which is who mm -hmm. works for them. And so mm -hmm. I need to go to the customer to make sure they're happy. So the example you just used, if I'm a CEO who pays VPs to lead regional director level folks, I'm going to go to the regional a lot because I want to make sure that they're getting what they need and that they're capable. And if they're capable, happy, content, loyal, then I know my VPs are doing their job well. But if my regionals are not capable, it's the VP's fault, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like, so I need to hold them accountable for what they get paid to do. Yeah, that's very interesting. So it's, it's really, you know, from, from our whole conversation, it feels like, you know, you're putting your people first on so many levels, not in the cliche sense of the term, but really trying to peel back the onion a little bit, figure out what's happening. And you you didn't say this directly, but I know I, I talk about this and, and it does tie into something you shared. I, I often recommend that when you are going to focus on communication, building your people, all of that, you should have standing meetings scheduled in advance because oftentimes I even had this with myself yesterday. Um, there's a, an organization where I coach and the person who makes decisions over there said he'd like to schedule a meeting. And, you know, the immediate reaction for myself, and I imagine for a lot of folks as well, is that if somebody asks for a meeting that's not scheduled in advance, you kind of wonder, is there something about my performance that they're not happy with. It's just human nature. So how do you diminish that? And simultaneously, of course, get the feedback that you need. And so when you have those standing meetings, whether it's weekly, monthly, somewhere in between, or even quarterly, it's already on the calendar. It's not driven by some kind of problem. It's driven by a need to stay in the loop on a regular basis, 
with that communication. And so if you're flying out to each of the regionals on a scheduled basis and you just do your, your fact finding as you're there or whatever your process is, depending on the specifics, that creates a sense of he wants to check it out. He's going to be back. You know, we'll have to be, I have to stay, I have to stay top of form because, you know, I want to be able to, to deliver. And simultaneously, it feels more organic and natural rather than, you know, leave alone zap or gotcha or anything like that, which oftentimes becomes the case when leaders are so busy. Like, for example, when I was a teacher, I would have principals, they'd show up once a year, you know, and do this lengthy report in my classroom. And I felt like, where have you been? You know, all these yeah. comments that you made, you don't know my class. You don't know anything about the dynamics with my students. You're making, you're drawing these conclusions. We don't have a relationship. You just say, here I am and here are my recommendations and I'm off to the next class. And that feels pretty yucky. So just curious if you have anything else to add on that point. Yeah. I mean, it's a great point. I think the, and, and I talk a lot about this, there's in retail, there's kind of this announced approach and unannounced approach. I'm a huge fan of unannounced at all levels. There's also, um, large posses of individuals that like to travel together. I'm a fan of not doing that as well. So um, the entourages. And, and the reason is you have to create a culture where there isn't I gotcha moments and you can just pop in regularly wherever you need to as a customer to evaluate anybody in retail. You need to be a customer. And so one, I tell CEOs when I talk with them, like leave the entourage alone, like go with yourself or maybe pick one person and start to go travel, but don't go with seven to 10 people. And at every level, when folks know you're coming, they're preparing for you. And so you're not going to see reality when you show up. You're going to see what they've created for you, which created a lot of stress, most likely above the eustress line for folks. And that's where some turnover gets created as well. But when you can create a culture of visits and, and, and whatever the assessments might be that are unannounced, and one of the ways to do that is to catch people doing things right first. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So going into stores or going into even the cubicles when you're walking around the offices, what can you recognize? And when you do that, you're going to find them. Now, mm -hmm. people worry, well, what about all the criticisms that need? You're always going to have enough time to talk about the criticisms because they're staring you in the face. But you run mm -hmm. out of time to talk about what's right because there's mm -hmm. so many criticisms. And so if you create a culture, a healthy culture of anybody at any level can pop in and have a genuine conversation and then the skill set, in my opinion, that's missing is to determine what's who's at fault for things. So, for example, if I travel the country and I travel 10 different regions and the same thing is wrong in eight of them, I have to look in the mirror. It's mm -hmm. my problem. Something's wrong. Something's broken. If it's two out of 10 that have something wrong, it's them. And what do we need to do to help level them up and skill set, create the skill set development that they need? But we need to get out and understand what's a broad area of opportunity, that's the company, what's a managed by exception opportunity, which might be an individual that we need to lean into. Yeah. Before I ask you my final question of the segment, I just want to make an observation. In my uh, doctoral um, research, my thesis, it was all it was all driven by the research of Bob Marzano, who talks about one of the greatest, um, one of the most highly correlated elements of academic growth for students is principal presence, walking the hallways, visiting classrooms, it's not being behind, you know, in your office and hiding behind the secretary and all of that, that drives academic success. Part of it is emotional and, and, and sort of more morale. Part of it is, is very practical, seeing what's going on and of course making improvements. And I think it's really relevant to leaders in any industry. You know, when you are present, it's called management by walking around, it's, it's other forms of that concept that makes a huge difference. And so 
it's a mindset I think that many people have that, wow, I got promoted. I'm now in the corner office. It's almost like I'm on this throne and I should hang out over there. But it really is a mistake. I almost think that CEOs should have no office at all. You know, in many cases or just, you know, a free open space where they can operate to the degree they need to do some quiet work. They'll have a place, but they should think more in terms of being out, being present and this way, understanding, leading by example, serving all the things we've been talking about. So my last question for you, Brian, before we transition to the next segment is about mistakes because every great leader makes them. I'm curious to know what was the greatest mistake or biggest mistake you've made along your professional journal and how did you, um, how did you, what did you, what have you learned from it? Yeah, no, I, I did about, a, I was about a 10 year period of time where my growth stalled, got, where I was stuck, right? And that's really where I think I learned a lot of what is in this book. And what I recognized was I wasn't applying the things that I knew I needed to apply. And, and I, I liken it to the education, right? So if, if you go to if you go to university or college, three to five years, you can graduate. Three years, if you take a whole bunch of credits every year, take no time off. Five years, if you take maybe a little bit of time off, and it could take you longer if you right, change majors or change educations. There was a period of time where I changed companies. I went from one company to another, and that slowed me down. I also um, took myself too seriously. And you just talked about the way a CEO should act. You know, I took myself too seriously. I started to drink the Kool-Aid and I and I believed that I was that good and maybe wasn't as open to learning as I needed to. And so in 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 doing so, my career stalled. You know, I've been let go. I was let go at age 30 for performance. And what I recognized was I accepted and acknowledged the reality of what I wasn't good at at the time, but I didn't embrace it. Acknowledge is when your mind accepts it. Embracing it is when your heart accepts it. You need both mm. to, to actually action the work. And so what I recognized in that moment was I needed to get back to where I also not only understood intellectually or rationally what it is that I needed to do, I needed to emotionally understand it as well and feel it. And when you combine those two things, all of a sudden, you know, I'm back on track. I'm growing at the same rate I was prior to that period in time. I ended up getting back to being a regional and then I'm running, you know, stores for two different organizations and got to Canada to run international stores as well. But, um, you know, it, it's one thing, a lot of people don't accept their realities. First of all, it's one thing to accept it. It's another thing to embrace it. That's my advice yeah. to anybody and everybody. Wow. Do pretty both. powerful. And just because you did, you did uh, reference your um, rabbinic lineage. Um, I will mention that in the, in the Jewish prayers, there's a verse that is quoted from the, from the Torah that says, you should know today, and you will place it to your heart in reference to your knowledge of God and whatnot. So it's a two-step process. There's knowledge, there's awareness, but to drive it more deeply requires effort. You can't just sort of tangentially pick it up and, and incorporate it. It, it, does, it does require deliberate practice and deliberate intent. Yeah, so, absolutely. Uh, Thank you for closing the circle there. Let's let's transition now to the to the rapid fire. A little quick, a little fun. Just curious. Um, so, a message for leaders that they don't understand um, that don't understand the impact they have on their people. In other words, a one liner that you would tell people to help them understand more about their impact. Because oftentimes we don't get it. Create privilege. Create privilege for others. There's there's people that are that grow up uh, that grow up not being privileged, not having privilege. We have an opportunity to create privilege for everybody that we come in contact with. Wow, nice. Three strategies to unwind after a busy day. 
Okay, after a busy day, I'm going to include bourbon as the third one. Honestly, um, I would Well, say, you are now you are now below <laughs> the Mason Dixon, so that's a fair reference. yeah, yeah, fair enough. Um, I think you have to shut off. Like Okay. uh, number one, you have to shut off. You have to stop looking at your phone for those reasons. Number two, you have to have told people that you're going to do that ahead of time so that they don't freak out about it and spend time with your family and friends or whatever it is that makes you happy. I do like that second one because I was guilty of not doing that. My style of leadership is different than the one of my predecessor, and that did throw people for a loop. Um, two strategies to help others bring their best selves to work. Don't hit the snooze button. Um, and prime yourself in the morning. So athletes prime themselves all the time. You need to get up early. You need to get moving. You need to get your, you know, you need to get your mind and your heart moving in the right direction. What's something interesting about retail that few people know? It's a phenomenal career that can put really quality food on the table for you and your family. Mm, nice. What kind of book that you read or, um, or, or, or gift to others highly recommend other than your own. Oh, I was going to go with my own. Um, I would say for my particular group, Retail Pride by Ron Thurston um, is a really good book that will hopefully help people have a, I see a it lot behind of pride you. in what they do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm helping market him as well. Okay, nice. All right. So, and finally a productivity tip that helps you to get more done. The 80-20 the rule is what I live by. So take Mm some, Google it, spend some time on it. It's fantastic. -hmm. yeah yeah it sure is so how can people connect with you learn more about your work get get access to your book all that good stuff Yeah, so Retail Leaders uh, Roadmap uh, would be the website that they can look up. Um, they can look me up on LinkedIn, uh, B. LeBrock, Brian LeBrock. Um, I do a video every single morning to help folks get moving, light the fire. Uh, my book launches on March 12th, um, so it'll be available to everybody to purchase. Um, audio will come out about a month later. I'll be in Las Vegas at Shop Talk uh, March 17th through the 20th to do a book signing and another podcast live on, on the, the, the floor there. And I'll be in University of Texas uh, in Dallas later in March for another book signing. So it's just starting to get that work out there. So that's where Awesome. you can find me. Well, tons of success with, with the book and with everything you're doing. Before we let you go, Brian, leave us please with one final life lesson. You know, I think I might have already said it. It's the snooze button. You, you have to, I, I refer to it as you have to get up and go. You have to put two feet on the floor. You have to put one foot in front of the other and you have to walk in the direction that you want to be. And if you do those things, more often than not, you'll find yourself at least relatively close to it. And if you dream high enough, you'll probably end up in a pretty good spot. What a great way to end the segment. Brian, it's been a pleasure getting to know you. Um, like I said, much success with your book and everything you're up to. The world needs this message. And uh, I really thank you for being on the show today. Thanks, Natalia. I appreciate it. You got it. Bye-bye now. Thanks so much for listening to this episode and for investing in yourself so that you can lead to succeed. Before you go, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Your feedback gives the show more social proof and encourages more folks to listen. 